Hello, and welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. For more great interviews and resources on the craft and business of writing, be sure to check out our companion website, scriptsandscribes.com. But first, today we're talking with Sleepy Hollow and Nikita writer and co-executive producer, Albert Kim. Thanks for coming back on, Albert. Thanks for having me. We recently posted an article on staffing season advice, which you contributed to, so thank you. We posted a cool article about fellowships written by a current CBS fellow, Greta Heinemann. We interviewed uh, lit manager Ava Jamshidi, who talked about working with her client, Owen O'Donnell, developing the messengers for CW. So it's been sort of a TV extravaganza. And I wanted to get your expert take on all of it. So first off, I guess the most important thing is staffing. Uh, we're in staffing season, obviously for uh, veteran writers uh, go first and you guys fill the ranks uh, with experienced writers first and then whatever room and or budget money is left, you start to fill it with, you know, lower level writers, the story editors and, and staff writers. Um, yeah, although I mean, like the, very, the process varies with every show. Some shows are have a completely different staffing process. Staffing is one of those systems that is... Uh, so unique to this business it's 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 odd it's like there's no other business where <laughs> everyone kind of applies for jobs all at one time you mm-hmm. know and uh but even even within those parameters um it, it, everyone has every show has different needs different deadlines different time frames that they're working under so uh and different uh requirements so it's a little like I guess like college applications, except every college has a different uh, deadline and different criteria that they're looking for. So it's really kind of a singular process and it can be, you know, frustrating to navigate for anyone at any level. You know, it doesn't change a whole lot from uh, when you're a staff writer to when you're, you know, a higher level person. It's still kind of the same process. Mm -hmm. How has the process changed with all these cable shows? While there's certainly still a staffing season and there's certainly still fall premieres of TV shows, but it has sort of shifted in that there's shows premiering at varying times during the year, whether it's mid season or during the fall, does that affect staffing season? And if so, to what degree? Yeah, no, it definitely does. I mean, the, the, since we've moved away from uh, traditional fall schedules for shows, I mean, that's still a bulk of uh, Mm -hmm. business, but there, there are, as you said, lots of mid-season shows, uh, cable shows, which seem to be uh, often follow their own schedule. It means that there are opportunities for jobs kind of year-round. So even though a lot of activity happens right now during staffing season for the network uh, upcoming network shows, there, if you miss out in this time of year, uh, there's no reason that you're going to have to sit out a whole year till the next staffing season. There's probably opportunities that will come up throughout the year. So traditionally, there was a big the big surge right around now to staff for the fall shows, and then a little bit later for sort of mid-season. Uh, but like I said, with cable shows, they're available year-round. Mm-hmm. And uh, even with the network shows, there's the schedules tend to be wildly different these days. Sometimes shows will start in September or October. Some will start in December. It's, it's, it's really everything is kind of spreading out, and that, may, that means pretty much good news for people who want to get jobs because uh, you'll have opportunities year-round. Right. And uh, speaking of jobs, I read fairly recently that there was sort of a lack of showrunners with experience, um, Mm -hmm. and they were having a hard time finding showrunners. What do you attribute that to? Is that just more TV being done and not enough showrunners? Part of the issue is just so many more shows out there right now. There's so many outlets, and uh, everything from 
new cable channels to uh, Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, even Yahoo, Sony, all doing original programming, it means there's uh, that much more demand for experienced showrunners to come in and take over these these shows for them. So, um, and and also, as we were talking about, with the schedules changing a little bit, it means that people can be tied up at times when traditionally uh, studios would be looking for people mm-hmm. to run their fall shows. Mm-hmm. So, um, it uh, it means that the landscape is shifting a bit in terms of finding experienced people who can run these shows. So uh, that makes for a very good event. And also, I think that uh, there's a there's an influx of feature writers recently who have entered the television business because they've sort of seen the creative freedom and opportunities that television has offers rather than the feature world, which is great in terms of bringing in more talented writers into the field, but a lot of times they're not necessarily... Uh, used to the process and often need to be paired up with someone to run the shows that they create. Right. Um, so in the past, when someone would uh, conceivably come up with an idea, sell a pilot, go to series, and then be the person who's running the show, now a lot of times once that happens, they also have to bring in an extra person to help them run the show. Right. Um, so uh, that just contributes to the overall demand for experienced showrunners. You gave some great advice on staffing season for uh, aspiring writers. I know you've gone through it. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can talk about what goes on in a showrunner's meeting. What kind of questions do you ask? What are you looking for? The thing to remember about when you actually have a meeting is that um, you've, if, you've, if, you've, if you're lucky enough to get a meeting with a showrunner, you've already um, cleared kind of the biggest hurdle. It means that they've read your writing sample and, and really like it. And so, because they're not, most of the times, they're not meeting with everyone who's a submission. They're just meeting with the people that they like their writing. So, um, all they're trying to do now is sort of see what you are like um, in terms of personality. So, um, the meetings that I've had and I've been part, uh, part of usually are just about getting to know you kind of things and seeing what kind of person you are and, and really just trying to see if uh, you're the type of person uh, you can stand to be with, frankly, in an enclosed room for up to 12 hours a day. Um, because uh, the chemistry is so important when it comes to building a writer's room. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of ways, it's almost like casting. I mean, it's a casting situation for the showrunner where they're trying to fill various roles, make sure everything, everyone can get along, make sure there's chemistry between all the people involved. And uh, so a lot of times, especially in the meetings that I've been involved in, we don't even ask about pitches or ideas for the show. Some, some showrunners definitely will. And I've been in staff meetings where those have come up. But uh, the ones I've been involved in, we just sort of talk about background and personal interests and just try to get a sense of who you are as a person. So it doesn't really involve a lot of uh, creative idea generation or any of that kind of stuff. So that's, that's kind of my my main piece of advice to people who are going into staffing meetings is just, you know, try to be yourself for one thing. I mean, you can't uh, lie or fake your way into this kind of thing Mm -hmm. and uh, try and be relaxed and uh, just know that all they want to do is see uh, who you are and whether they like you. Um, It's one of the things I said, I think in that, in that piece we did, it's it's a little bit like dating, you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, it's just a, uh, it's kind of a blind date. So you don't have to worry too much about uh, trying to sell them on your writing because, like I said, they've already read your stuff and liked it and, have, and you've gotten in to go see the show. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's the big hurdle that's, that's been cleared already. One thing I thought was funny that you had mentioned is make sure that you don't 
point out if you have a weird writing style like you could only write upside down in the dark or something like that <laughs> you, yeah yeah um, i mean we all have our quirks in, in our processes and stuff and it's fine to have them i don't know if you want to highlight them if they're really bizarre um uh, writers as you know can tend to be introverted and loners and weird and stuff which is fine when it comes to your writing but you don't, don't want necessarily want to highlight those traits when you're talking to uh people about um getting hired onto a show because Unlike writing features, say, this television is very much a collaborative medium. So um, you are going to be in a small room uh, with these people for a long time. And you're going to spend more time with these people than you would with your own family over the course of the show. So it's really important that you um, they, they see you as someone that they want to do that with. Right. So, um, yeah, to, uh, it's probably not the place to bring up the fact that you can only think when you're, you know, walking around in your underwear, chewing on Twizzlers right. uh, with uh, music, uh, with a Walkman strapped on and music blaring because that's not really going to fly in the writer's room. Right. <laughs> I'll make a note not to say that. Um, no, that's funny. Mm -hmm. Now, what percentage of new staff writers, again, this is so random and I'm sure it's not even something that you would have ever thought about, but I'm just curious in terms of what percentage do you think of new staff writers would you say are either former assistants, you know, writers or showrunners assistants who obviously have sort of an in in that room, know the characters and know everything about the show because they sit in on the writer's room. Fellowship alumni who I know are attractive because oftentimes their salary is paid by uh, mm -hmm. CBS or ABC or, you know, the network or simply just rep writers submitted via their agents. Yeah, it's hard to tell the specific percentages. You know, the traditional yeah. path has definitely been uh, from, say, a writer's on a show and after they worked in that position for season two seasons however long they get a chance to be a staff writer um, those that's still a perfectly viable path into the room um, but as you said there's other ways in as well that's kind of the both the um, drawback as well as kind of the beauty of uh, this business is that there's no one set path pathway in mm -hmm. so like you could uh have a completely unorthodox background and come in. Like, I, for example, I, I was never an assistant because my background, I was a journalist. And sure. I came in after having a completely different career, was a technical consultant for a show, and then ended up in a writer's room. But uh, other people come in through, like you said, the fellowship route. And uh, I know many people who have done that and been, had very, very successful careers. Um, other people come in through the assistant route. Um, and so there's no one uh, way that's better than the others, I think. You know, it's just a matter of finding a way into the room, proving that you're someone who can be valuable and, and constructive in that room, and then just sort of uh, taking it from there. Um, you know, and, and in, in the end, all that's important, and a lot of it will, and, but there's a, a lot of it will depend upon your writing. So, you know, getting that writing sample that you're really proud of and happy with is probably uh, the most important thing that you can be doing, no matter what position you're in. If you're an assistant or a PA or wherever you are, even if just being in that room may not be uh, enough, you have to be also working on your own stuff on your own time so that uh, you can present it to the showrunner and say, hey, this is what I can do. Um, uh, and that goes for being in a fellowship or coming from a different job or a different career. Mm -hmm. A lot of the advice came down to if you know somebody like a showrunner on a different show than the one you're going to go meet on, having that showrunner that you know and likes your work and 
likes you, obviously likes you enough to be willing to make that call, call the showrunner that you're meeting on, which is a great referral, yeah. obviously. But do other referrals matter? For example, if you're staffing a show, you're the showrunner, and let's say uh, a writer, like a staff writer or a story ed editor from a different show you worked on uh, recommends th this writer to you, they call you and, and say this person's great, or even maybe a transpo guy or, um, I don't know, uh, an AD, somebody who who is obviously not another showrunner referring this writer to you, but somebody else that you happen to know. Does that matter? Right. Sure. Yeah. I mean, everything helps. This is like every other business. It's all about your relationships and your network. And so um, any, any piece of information like that will, uh, will help you. So um, uh, references from anyone help. Showrunner references are great. Obviously references from other writers are terrific too. I don't know if I've ever heard from a transfo guy or someone <laughs> through making a reference, but you know, it certainly can't hurt. It's all about, like I said, the personalities in the room and the more information a showrunner has mm -hmm. about that person and uh, the, the better it is. If you consistently hear someone is just, you know, terrific and a joy to be around and uh, has a great sense of humor and all that kind of stuff, then that's going to have an effect. Certainly hearing from people who know what you're like in a room is probably the most important uh, and who are familiar with the writing is probably important. But aside from that, no one's going to turn down information about your personality or, or what you are, or what you're like as a, as a human from anyone. So yeah, getting any kind of reference helps. You know, I've, on behalf of other people, been a reference for every position from script coordinator to writer's assistant to writer to producer. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that every time I've made a call or sent an email, people have been very happy to hear. Um, and at the same time, I've heard, uh, I've gotten references from usually writers, you know, and usually producers, but also mm -hmm. executives. A lot of that, that also is a big one too, hearing from executives at studios and networks. Um, and assistants, assistants are also, um, hmm. will have a lot of information actually. But, I mean, the lesson to be taken out of this, and it really shouldn't be, it shouldn't need to be said, but maybe it does is like, just be nice to everyone, you know, be <laughs> cool to, you know, just because you're a producer and someone is an assistant doesn't give you the, you know, right to demean them or speak down to them or treat them poorly. Um, that's on a very basic human level for one thing, mm -hmm. but in a more pragmatic sense, it can come back to bite you because the person who is an assistant today is going to be either a showrunner or an executive in not too long from today. <laughs> it just, it, it just is, especially in this business. And I've right. seen it time and time again. So, uh, be nice to the people uh, who are all around you, not just the ones above. You know, it's, there's a in, in the corporate world they have a phrase about managing down as well as managing up, mm -hmm. and so that's an important thing to keep in mind because those people will be the ones who are giving you your references. Right. I know that uh, mm -hmm. you have a deal with Fox, so I wanted to talk to you about that sort of development process. You have, for example, a, a pilot script. Okay, so what do you do, or what does your rep do, and then where does it go from there? Development is an interesting world. I mean, there are people who, uh, especially in the TV world, who solely develop. They won't staff at all. They just spend all their time selling projects. And there's a way to, you know, make a pretty good living that way. Mm -hmm. um, 
It's a, um, again, things are changing a lot in this business as with everything else because of all the new outlets and because of all the new time frame for everything. Traditionally, there used to be an actual development season um, where studios basically kind of opened their doors for pitches and then um, you, your reps got you meetings where you went in and pitched your ideas um, to either the directly to the studio or to one of the pods, the producers who have deals with studios. Um, and then you went out with them and then pitched to the networks and, and so on. Uh, again, a lot of even the traditional networks uh, such as Fox have talked quite a bit about uh, moving away from that uh, model and going to a year-round development frame. Um, so nowadays, it's not inconceivable that you can go in with a pitch at any time of year to a studio. Uh-huh. Um, you know, for people who are beginning, who are just starting out, the good thing about... I don't know if you've already talked to people or discussed on your site about uh, the staffing samples um, that you write and mm-hmm. what to write as a staffing sample. Uh, this goes back to development a little bit, but, um, you know, it used to be that everyone wanted to see a spec of an existing show, uh, but right. more recently it's kind of uh, moved towards original specs. Mm-hmm. And the beauty of that is that that can also serve as something that you might be able to pitch for development. You know, right. if you write something that's good, it can it, it serves double duty. It could be a calling card and staffing, but it could also be something that you can try and sell. And that's happened quite a bit. I mean, I, I know... Uh, we had a new staff writing team this past season on Sleepy Hollow, and their essentially their writing sample they sold as a pilot to 20th Century Fox, oh. uh, and they got partnered uh, with Howard Gordon's company, and they're still in development on that. So that's what's great about writing original X for your writing sample. I don't know. I mean, you probably know better than I do. What are most people doing these days? Are they specking existing shows or writing original samples? It's it's almost all original spec pilots nowadays. Uh, that seems to be That's what it. everybody wants. There's a few exceptions. I know Vina Sood of The Killing said she loves, she takes original spec pilots like everybody else, but once she's interested in them, she loves to get a second sample, and often it's a spec of a current show. Spec of an existing show, yeah. Correct. I so also that she know can that get certain the... fellowships and programs actually require you to spec an existing show. Right. So um, that's where those can be helpful. I mean, personally, I prefer to read original original specs, um, but I think there is a utility and a value to specking an existing show. I will say, I mean, this is just a piece of advice I've seen uh, that I put out there based on the stuff I've seen. If you are going to spec an existing show, it's pretty important that you pick a fairly well-known show, a show that you're pretty sure that the reader, who you don't know who it's going to be, will be familiar with and, and know. So it's a pretty big show. Like, you know, don't take the quirky little British drama that no one has ever seen and do a speck of that. Mm-hmm. Um, no matter how much you're passionate about it or how much you love it, because uh, you're just going to leave the reader lost. And I, I, again, I've seen that more often than not. Mm-hmm. So uh, stick to the, stick to the bigger shows, the more popular shows, the ones that, that are familiar to people. I imagine people these days already know that and they're doing specs of, I don't know, The Walking Dead and right. uh, shows like that, which are which are all fine. Just don't don't go with some really small cult favorite show to spec. Right. Um, but yeah, no, there's definitely a, there's definitely a value to specking an existing show because it, you can see how someone uh, is able to write in the style of existing characters and stick to a particular structure. Um, but for me, just personally, I, I prefer reading original specs because I'm 
more interested in seeing how someone is able to build characters and, and uh, create uh, a story arc and conflicts uh, out of thin air rather than existing on uh, relying on existing um, structures. Right. Now, for those who are writing specs for existing shows, whether it's for a fellowship or as an additional writing sample or just practice, whatever, I guess a lot of the appeal to it is that you get to see if they can replicate because that's really what essentially staff writers do is they're replicating the voice of their showrunner of the of the tone and the characters and the dialogue of of the show that they are trying to write for just to show that they can do that uh, as opposed mm-hmm. to their spec pilot which is to see what they do when they're left to their own devices would you recommend that when they're writing a spec of an existing show they sort of stick to the conventions of that show and try to do a good version of the show or to try to stand out i've heard of some writers and i'm not sure the level of success based on it but i've heard some writers trying to create taking the same characters in the same uh, show but really changing the conventions to sort of stand out you know for example making it all some sort of dream sequence or making it you know an episode where one of the characters dies or something like that is that something that you would advise they stay away from or is that something that might actually interest you yeah no that's a good question i mean um as you said the purpose of speccing a show is to see whether a writer can efficiently uh write in the style of that show mm-hmm. or character and structure so at the same time, I don't think you want to be creating some kind of workman-like uh, and frankly not so memorable episode of the show. Mm-hmm. Because what you're not trying to do is create something that necessarily has to be produced for the show. Right. Um, you're not looking to write episode, you know, three oh seven of an existing series. You're looking to create a writing sample that's going to be memorable and stand out to someone who's reading it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a tough balance, but I would I would err on the side of doing something that's going to stand out and, and be memorable. Now, uh, there's, again, there's another line that you don't want to cross there, which is to be too gimmicky. Um, so, there's you know, I remember back a while ago during the heyday of Lost, and everyone was writing their Lost specs. Mm-hmm. And uh, the tricky thing about writing a spec of Lost is that that's a highly serialized show. And writing uh, an episode of Lost, sometimes uh, by the time your spec is done, what's actually happened on the series will have superseded what you've written about and right. changed everything. And, you know, the characters who you're writing about might be dead by the time you're done with your thing mm-hmm. because they, they killed off characters all the time. Usually the advice there is not to worry too much about it because, you know, people will understand. At the same time, I think there is a way of approaching even highly serialized shows and doing a version, doing a spec that doesn't, you know, fall on the train tracks of their storytelling. Um, and my friend had said, you know what would be good, what would be great is to just write the very last episode of Lost, mm. you know? So, like, it, you know, you don't rely on what's going to happen next week or what happened last week, but you can just show how you would tie up this incredibly serialized adventure that they're telling. I thought that was a really smart idea yeah. because that would certainly stand out if I was reading it, especially if you titled it the very last one or whatever, or the <laughs> end. Right. And you saw this is how they were going to do it. And it gives the writer an opportunity to still write in the style of those characters and that structure. And I thought, wow, that's a great idea. You know, that's certainly a way to do it. So, um, there's, and like, it, it's much easier, I think, if you're going to spec a show that's 
more standalone procedural. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, specking a CSI or, or a NCIS, I think, might be a little bit easier because you don't have to worry too much on the serialized elements. Mm-hmm. But uh, I know people want to spec uh, the serialized shows out there. So that's one way to approach it. Right. And part of the advice that was given in the Snapping Advice article was to have samples that match the show that you're meeting on. If you're meeting on The Walking Dead, that you have a serialized starting sample. And if you're meeting on Castle or something, you have a procedural sample. How important is that? Like being a showrunner, reading samples? Yeah, no, that's a a valid point. It's a good thing. And I think a lot of people will look to see that you're writing in that vein or genre that, that you're staffing for. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's certainly good if you're going out for some big um, genre show that your set will be genre. Personally, I think that um, good writing is good writing, no matter what the genre or style is. Um, but that's a personal thing. I know that a lot of, for a lot of people, showrunners, and, and frankly, a lot of executives really maybe a little more important for them, uh, that they want to see that you can write in that specific style of that show so that if you're applying to, say, Castle, that you can write kind of bantery relationship dialogue and and work in a somewhat procedural format. Um, And if you're applying for Walking Dead, that you can write in a a genre mode. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think the people who you talk to are right. I mean, it's fairly important out there. But at the same time, hopefully there are people out there who are more like me who just think the writing is what's important rather than the specific style of writing or the genre of writing. That's just my personal opinion, really. Right. But like on a show like Nikita, would you Mm -hmm. have considered a writing sample from somebody? I mean, would you have concerns from writing sample, even if it was great, from somebody who did a medical show or? No, I, I personally did, and, and you know okay. that's a good example because the writing sample that Craig Silverstein wrote, read of mine uh-huh. had nothing to do with espionage or action adventure oh, or, cool. or any of that kind of stuff. It was um, it was just like a quirky little one hour drama about uh, a con man who discovers he has a daughter he never knew he had, and it turns out to be kind of equally uh, con artist as well. But it had nothing to do with the espionage world. It had no action sequences in it, no adventure in it. But he read it, and he liked it, and he liked the character work in it, I think, and all of that. And I got hired on the show. So, like, that's why, that may be also why I'm such a firm believer in that um, mm-hmm. principle. Um, but, yeah, and when we're reading people for Nikita in subsequent seasons, I don't recall reading only people who wrote in that in that vein. I remember reading a pretty wide variety of samples and we were just looking for people who knew how to who write, frankly. So, um, uh, and didn't worry too much about being so immersed in a particular genre. Mm-hmm. No, that's great. I wanted to get into sort of a little bit of the nuts and bolts of writing things like ABC stories. Can you just explain sort of basically what that is? Those refer to different storylines within mm-hmm. a particular episode, a storyline, B storyline, a C storyline. Typically within an hour drama you have something and again this is varies from show to show but sure. like you'll have a particular a story which is sort of the predominant story of the week and it may involve your your main characters uh and then in addition to that you may have a um you'll probably have a b story which is a, a slightly less real estate devoted to it you know and may involve some of your secondary characters or it could involve your 
primary characters as well. But there's probably fewer scenes of that. And on top of all of that, there's often a sea story, which sometimes is also called a runner. And that could just be anywhere from a two or three beats uh, of another storyline. Um, and you'll see that both in drama and in comedies. You know, Friends is a good example. Friends, what was remarkable about Friends is they, almost every episode of Friends had an A, B, and a C storyline within a half-hour comedy. Mm-hmm. And they stuck to that throughout their entire run, which is incredibly challenging to do. Um, and like I said, their C stories sometimes were just a little runner, maybe even two beats or so. Um, but there was usually a big A story, um, which was this basically, if you read the TV listings, that's what would be listed as the storyline. Mm-hmm. And then a B story that involved a couple of the other characters, and then uh, a quick runner. So uh, they had a six-person ensemble, so it was usually divided among those characters. Um, you know, on Sleepy Hollow, the main characters are Ichabod, Ichabod Crane and Abby Mills, mm-hmm. and often the A stories about them. There could be a B story that's about Jenny Mills, her sister, uh, or Captain Irving, or it could be involve one of the main characters and one of the other characters. Uh, and then there could be a C story that's, um, uh, again, just a quick runner and it could involve anyone. So uh, the tricky thing about doing that is coming up with those three storylines and finding a way to weave them together so they don't feel so discrete and separate. Because oftentimes when you're breaking these things, you'll break them independently. You'll break a story, an A storyline, and then a B storyline, and then a C storyline. But then when you weave them together, you don't want them to feel like they're all separate shows. You want them to somehow intersect, reflect upon each other, even if it's just thematically. Um, and that's, um, that's hard. I mean, that's, we, frankly, we spend a lot of time in the room just doing that and just making sure that they all kind of are seamless. Right. Um, so, uh, it's hard. I think it would be almost impossible to break an episode sequentially without, uh, rather than, like I said, doing A story, B story, and C story separately. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't even imagine doing that. <laughs> uh, I would, I would break an A story by itself, then a B story, and then a C story, and then figure out a way to weave them together. Mm-hmm. Um, that may be different in the comedy world, because I've, I have heard on sitcom rooms that they sometimes will just go straight through. But that, that just like boggles my mind. I don't know how you could juggle all those balls at once. <laughs> Uh, but that's, that's essentially how A, B, and C story works. And if you're speaking an existing show, the best thing to do is just sort of like study some scripts or watch some episodes and see how they do it. Um, Grey's Anatomy is another good example. You can just watch that show and see how they juggle their various storylines because they have a big ensemble cast as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, nearly every show does it. And so uh, you just have to watch that specific show and see how they manage to do it. Yeah. And that's something that we definitely recommend it's it's different when you actually watch an episode and break it down to the nuts and bolts, read the script, see where uh, the act breaks are, and really see how the house is built, rather than just looking at the house and going, okay, I know how to build one. You really need to like right. tear apart the walls and see the plumbing and, and, and figure out all the nuts and bolts of what makes that show work. Right. I mean, there was a, there's a practical side to why you have A, B, and C storylines as well, mm-hmm. because uh, when you're producing episodic television it's often, it's almost impossible to have your lead characters be in every single scene uh, of your episode. So you need to be able to cut away to something. Right. And so that usually is why you need a B story. Uh, something else that sort of takes the pressure off of your lead uh, and off of that storyline. And mm-hmm. that's also why you have a C story. So it's, there's a practical reason for that, and which may inform how you look at these episodes when you break them down and you can see where, where they fall in. 
uh, into the storyline. Um, when you're breaking the story, though, it's really you, you just want to, again, think about how they're going to interact, how they're going to mesh, how they're going to weave together when you put all those lines together. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, there's a question that we ask a lot of reps, agents and managers, that is based on something that is thrown out there a lot, but it's really amorphous and difficult to quantify, and that's voice. You know, what is uh-huh. a writer's voice? Uh, and I think a lot of newer writers have a hard time really figuring out what that means. And I know when you signed your deal at 20th Century Fox, your your overall deal, the president of creative affairs, Johnny Davis, said, quote, uh, we build shows around a voice. And Albert has a very specific voice, his writing's compelling and an adrenaline rush, which is a cool way to describe your voice, actually. Um, <laughs> what What is voice, a writer's voice? And how do you see it in writing? How does it pop for you? Yeah. Voice is something that people talk about all the time, mm-hmm. and frankly, I think is kind of one of the most overrated things in this whole field. I mean, it's it's very intangible and unquantifiable, and if you start worrying about it, you're going to drive yourself crazy. I mean, <laughs> it's the kind of thing that will just come out naturally as you learn your craft and as you learn how to do your thing and as you write what you like to write. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember being on set for an episode of Leverage uh, a few years back. And uh, I was, I don't know, story editor at the time or something. It wasn't very high up. And uh, I was talking to our to our script um, coordinator. And uh, she was telling me that she could tell, if you ripped off the title pages of all the scripts, she could tell which person on the writing staff wrote which episode. And I was really surprised at that because, you know, we were fairly young and we were fairly inexperienced. What we were trying to do at the time was basically write like the style of of the showrunners. Mm -hmm. And so we were doing our best to do that. Uh, We were breaking our stories in the room together. So that was collaborative. We would go off and write our scripts by ourselves. But at the same time, often there's at least a bit of a pass from the showrunners before we went into production. And yet she was able to tell just from things that I wasn't even paying attention to, um, whether it's phrasing or wording, semantic, however it was, who wrote what, which is basically a way of saying she understood all of our voices. Mm -hmm. So for me, voice is something that just comes out when you, um, you can't force it, you can't, you know, adopt one. You can't decide all of a sudden you're going to write like Charlie Kaufman and be the next Charlie Kaufman. I guess you could. It's going to sound stupid. But, um, you know, you just have to write the way you know how to write. And uh, and then voice is something that just comes out naturally, and and it'll and people outside of yourself will recognize it because a lot of times you can't. It's it's like your literal voice; you can't hear yourself oh, gotcha. um, until you see it back on a recording. It's kind of that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Now that said, the tricky part is as we were talking about before with a lot of uh, when you're specking existing shows, you're trying to copy someone else's voice. So a lot of times your voice. You, your natural voice might get lost. So speaking of Charlie Kaufman, you know, he was unable to do that when he was on staff. You know, he just couldn't sublimate his own voice to that of a showrunner's. So the thing, I think, I mean, I don't know exactly what I'm advocating except to just sort of be yourself, write to your own standards, write to your own case, and your voice will come out naturally, I think. Mm -hmm. So um, that's probably, that's what I would say is the, the most important thing. For those feature writers out there who may have a great TV idea, and you had mentioned that you 
have heard of or know of people who just constantly develop ideas but don't really participate in the show itself, but they're developing pilot ideas and, and shopping them around and that kind of thing. If a feature writer has a great TV idea but really knows that they would not be interested in working in the TV world, per se, in terms of like as a writer in a writer's room... Would that be sort of how you would suggest to pursue that avenue? Or is that something that's kind of for established um, writers only? No, I mean, there's. it's funny. I, I just recently had a meeting uh, with a feature writer. It was set up through my agency because we were both at the same agency. Mm-hmm. But he is exactly what you said. He's a feature writer. He's a very successful one. Uh, he had a few ideas for TV shows. He has. Uh, he's, he's excited about them. He's done a fair amount of work on them. He has no interest in running a TV show. Mm-hmm. Um, he kind of wants a partner to take the take take the ball and run with it, um, and, which is why we sat down together and he was interested in engaging my interest in his ideas. So that does happen. Um, there there are also a lot of feature writers who get into TV and do want to be very involved in the project. Mm-hmm. You know, um, they they find once they get involved in television that the satisfaction they get from seeing their work appear on screen in such a short time frame is tremendous. And it is, you know, features have a much longer time frame. They work for years uh, before you see anything on screen. If that, I know there are incredibly successful feature writers that never see anything produced. So um, television can satisfy that age in a lot of ways. And so that's why a lot of feature writers are, are getting involved in the field. Mm-hmm. Um, and creatively, you know, in television writers are, are king, so they get to call the shots as opposed to features, which are still primarily a director's medium. Right. So um, there's the feature writers get involved in the television business in a lot of different ways these days. Like this is what I guess I'm saying. Um, and if you're starting out as a feature writer, you could certainly tap into friends of yours who are in the TV world just to see what that process is like. It's not for everyone. Like you said, it's a much higher pressure situation because you're working under constant deadline. Mm-hmm. And that's, I know plenty of future writers who have dabbled in television and realized that they just can't operate in, in those circumstances. So it's just a matter of personal taste and, and feel, you know, um, and also depends a lot on where you are and your and it's what stage you are in your career. So uh, like with everything, there's lots of different ways in and out of the business. Right. Now we have a, a fun part of the uh, interview uh, where we like to find out what you're reading, watching, playing, and listening to. <laughs> the irony of being a working television writer is that it gives me <laughs> no time to watch television. You know, it's just like, I watched far more television before I started working on it. But, right. you know, there's a ton of stuff. I, I you know, it's really... Um, both incredibly satisfying and incredibly frustrating to see the level of quality on television these days because um, it's great to see at the same time I don't know how anyone keeps up with all this stuff mm-hmm. there's so much good television out there I wish I could be watching you know there's a lot of stuff I'm looking forward to this month in particular is a great month for you know I can't wait till Game of Thrones comes back oh yeah uh, you know I can't uh, uh, I, w- I was so happy that Mad Men was back you know and mm-hmm. Uh, Louis is on tonight. I love that show. Um, At the same time, there's all this new stuff that is appearing too. You know, Daredevil premieres on Netflix tomorrow and, you know, I don't know when I'm going to find time for that, but I know I have to. Right. Um, There's lots of shows I'm I'm really looking forward to. You know, I loved Silicon Valley the first season. Oh yeah, absolutely. Orphan Black is 
is coming back as well in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. You know, I just don't know where I'm going to find the time in addition to, to working. Yeah, and on top of that, there's also, you know, a stack of reading that I have on my night table that is just begging me to come finish, you know. Uh, and I, and I, again, the challenge is just finding hours in the day mm-hmm. in which to do that. So, um, yeah, I mean, and, and that's not even talking about Movies. I realized I went to see Fast and Furious this past weekend. I realized it's been months since I've actually gone to a theater right. and sat down to see a movie. Right. You know, um, and that and at the same time, so that kind of makes me sad whenever I kind of see all these trailers for all these amazing movies that are coming up. Because I, my first reaction is like, cool, awesome. My second reaction is like, how am I going to go see this? <laughs> how am I going to find the time to go see this? You know, so. When it's entertainment kind of becomes a burden, <laughs> it becomes yeah. A, no, I know it's uh, a luxurious problem to have. But yeah, it's a problem. You know, yeah, there's, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a there's no shortage of, of uh, great stuff out there. Yeah, yeah, especially on TV. That's there, there is so much great TV out there. Um, yeah, and so I'm assuming that you don't play any games or an instrument or anything like that. I mean, I, I love video games. I wish I could. You know, again, that's another. Yeah, uh, thing I just need to find time for. There are games that I've started and I haven't finished yet. Sometimes uh, because of time. Mm-hmm. Um, other times, like you know, I love The Last of Us. Yeah, and uh, I haven't finished it yet because it's actually one of those rare games that's incredibly taxing emotionally. Right. It's so well done. It's mm. unbelievably well done. Yeah. And uh, I'm kind of scared to see where the rest of the story goes. Okay. And uh, because because it's been out for a little while, I heard some stories. I kind of know. Yeah. At the same time, I don't want to. I don't want to actually experience it. So that's kind of on hold right now. Yeah, I won't tell uh, you what happened. For me. I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but like, uh, yeah, that's that's a tremendous um, game story, no matter what medium. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I try to find time every now and then. These days, you know, like the best thing I can do is like find some kind of casual game I can pop in and out for a few minutes. Yeah, because we we talk to a, a bunch of people and they're like, oh, I play Candy Crush on my phone or something like that. That you know, that's not yeah. really as involved. No, but at least you know it's not going to leave you sobbing before you go to bed at night. <laughs> yeah, or suck forty hours of your life in one sitting. Yeah, yeah, I'm curious to see what they do with the Last of Us feature. I guess they're making a film out of it, so that'll be interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I know should be interesting. So video game adaptations have had a spotty record in the past. Right, so absolutely. There's that one. The other one I'm really interested in as a feature is uh, Uncharted. Uh-huh, yeah. Because that was also a game, that was also a game series that I loved. Right. I didn't play the last Assassin's Creed, but I, I like the other ones. Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff coming up. It'll be interesting to see how they... How they yeah, I don't know about Uncharted, but I know that The Last of Us, Neil, I can't remember his last name right now, the, the original writer of, the head writer of The Last of Us is actually going to be, the mm-hmm. game is going to write the feature, so that should hopefully translate well, hopefully. So that'll be kind of interesting. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's ever, I don't think we can fail because of the skill level or the talent of the particular writers. It just has to do with adapting one medium to another. Mm, that's um, And there's, uh, there's some limitations that interactive that um, something like film has when com- when confronted with interactive storytelling, I think. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's kind of a longer discussion. Right? Yeah, that'll be for the next um, time. Do you listen to anything while you work? I'll listen to a lot of uh, soundtracks uh-huh. and um, things like that, sort of uh, to set the mood. I-, I tend to work in coffee shops. Oh, I'll work at like Coffee Bean or Starbucks or stuff like that because I need. 
a baseline level of background noise. Uh-huh. Uh, so uh, a lot of times that's fine. If it gets if the music that they're playing gets a little too intrusive, I'll hop on the earphones and, and start some soundtracks. But you know, um, the soundtrack for I listen to the soundtrack for uh, Sunshine quite uh-huh. a bit which uh, strangely always tends to work for me. Um, more recently, a lot of the Fincher soundtracks, Tag and Tattoo, um, have been good. There was a, so there's a whole, whole bunch of different things. Sometimes I'll create mixes. There's a great, actually, soundtrack playlist on Spotify that I found that was really helpful. Oh, okay. um, it's sort of like perfectly mood-setting. I'll right. have to find it again. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so I don't I don't tend to listen to things with lyrics in them because they tend to mess up my <laughs> right. Um, now, do you tend to listen to music just as background noise, or do you use it to sort of motivate your writing? Like if you're writing an action sequence, throw on some actiony type music, or is it just background noise to kind of get you focused? Both, I think. I mean, depending on what stage of writing I'm at. Sometimes if I'm breaking ideas, it'll just be kind of background noise kind of thing. If I'm um, writing an actual script, I might need something that's more mood setting. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, action sequence, there's some great tracks on the Inception soundtrack that work for me. Oh, cool. But, uh, yeah, it kind of varies. It kind of depends on the day and kind of depends on what the task is at hand. Mm-hmm. And uh, lastly, uh, how have you spent your hiatus? Well, I've been uh, trying to get a few development things off the ground um, because I know that once the Sleepy Hollow Room starts up in earnest, time is going to be incredibly short. Mm -hmm. I want to make it a priority to get something off the ground of my own this year. So I've been trying to focus on um, uh, my own ideas for development as well as taking meetings with production companies who are pitching me various properties that they own and ideas that they have. I've been in the process of sorting through all that and, and working on that kind of stuff and uh, working with a studio to narrow it down to something that I can really sink my teeth into. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of um, dominated my, my hire this period uh, because we were going back into the Sleepy Hollow Writers Room pretty soon. I mean, there's already We've already been doing some preliminary work on it already, so um, the train is very close to leaving the station on that. Right. So uh, hopefully you get to watch the Avengers <laughs> next month and not have to wait <laughs> know. You know, eight months. But uh, no, that's awesome. Oh yeah! Thanks for coming on the show again. Another great movie, yeah. Yeah, no, there's absolutely summer. Obviously, I always have great films, but uh, hopefully you get to watch a few of them since you're going to be sitting in the writers' room working hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but thanks for coming on the show again, Albert. It's always great to pick your expert brain. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and you can follow Albert on Twitter at Magic Branch. So be sure to follow him on Twitter at Magic Branch. And if you have questions about the craft or business of writing, you can send us an email to ask at scriptsandscribes.com or send us a tweet to at scriptscribes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>